So the Fed came through and did pretty much what everyone expected to do, right? 25 basis points. And for the market, that was good enough, right? Powell basically confirmed, yeah, we might do a little bit more, but the rate hiking cycle is coming to an end. Given that the U.S. economy still seems to be humming along, despite all the rate hikes we've seen, investors are feeling pretty good. We're at the point where we've gotten through this period of extremely rapid monetary tightening, going from zero at the early part of 2022 up to almost 5% without anything breaking in a major way. What more could investors want, right? Hi, this is Heather Bell. I'm a managing editor with ETF.com, and this is Exchange Traded Fridays, an ETF.com podcast that talks about the things that have recently developed in the ETF space on a weekly basis. I'm joined by my colleague, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit. Hey, Heather. Great to be here with you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Always good to chat with you. We just had a Fed meeting. And you follow this way more closely than I do. So I was wondering, what were your takeaways from that meeting? I mean, they raised it by, they raised interest rates by a quarter percent, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So the Fed came through and did pretty much what everyone expected to do, right? 25 basis points. And for the market, that was good enough, right? Powell basically confirmed, yeah, we might do a little bit more, but the rate hiking cycle is coming to an end. You could quibble about whether the Fed's going to stop here, hike one more time or two more times, but we are close to the end. Powell confirmed that. So given that and given that the U.S. economy still seems to be humming along, despite all the rate hikes we've seen, investors are feeling pretty good. We're at the point where we've gotten through this period of extremely rapid monetary tightening, going from zero at the early part of 2022, up to almost 5% without anything breaking in a major way. What more could investors want, right? And I think until there's evidence of significant weakening in the economy or inflation reaccelerating, the bulls have the upper hand. And that's why we've seen this big rally in the stock market post-Fed. So so what do you think, Heather? Well, I mean... I'm just wondering if this is going to kind of like shift us back to a growth oriented regime because value was kind of favored during the last year when, you know, everything kind of went pretty much every asset class almost seemed like it was going down except maybe for commodities and a couple other things. Um, Yeah. We're going to, do you think this means we're going to see more of a growth orientation in the market? Cause arcs up a lot of the, uh, crypto related ETFs are bouncing back like crazy. It, yeah, yeah. It's a wild turnaround. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just since the start of the year, one month, we've seen these huge moves arc up 30 plus percent, Bitcoin up 40 plus percent. It does seem like the growth of parts in the market are back, but at the same time, they were so beaten down that these moves don't necessarily you know, suggest anything more than, you know, them just coming back to a more reasonable level. But yeah, I mean, we have seen some some positive news. If you look at the earnings report from Meta, that was better than expected. Even Microsoft's report we got, I think, a week ago, it wasn't necessarily as bad as it could have been. And given that these tech stocks and growth stocks are down so much, I think 
investors feel more comfortable getting back in, uh, especially now that interest rates are down. If you look at the 10-year treasury yield is down to something like 3.36%, which is a full percentage point down from the high we saw last year. But I don't think it's necessarily we're going back to that 2020-2021 regime, right? That wasn't just a function of low interest rates. That was a function of euphoria and speculation in this bubble, essentially. I don't think we're going back to those days. People are going to be more mindful uh, with regard to valuations, right? Valuations just went to such an extreme level in those years. Now people might, you know, gravitate a little bit more towards growth again if interest rates do come down and inflation comes down. But they're not going to go back to those crazy days. At least I don't think they will. Uh, uh, so valuations are still top of mind for investors. This kind of reminds me of the tech bubble when I first, you know, started working after college. Um, yeah. Everyone talked about the insane valuations and then the bubble popped. It's like every maybe couple decades or decade, the market needs a reminder to pay attention to the valuations, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, if you look at a lot of the charts for tech-focused and growth-focused ETFs, they look very similar to the triple Qs chart from the dot-com bust. They'd all drop 70 80%. And then, yeah, once they reach their bottom... Uh, in 2003 or whatever it was, the, the triple Qs, I think, uh, doubled or something off the bottom. But it took many, many years before it went all the way back to that, that high it hit in the year 2000. So something similar could happen here. You know, we, we could still see, you know, the arcs of the world rebound, but getting back all the way to those peaks of 2021, I think that's going to take longer. Yeah, I'll bet my portfolio is kind of um, not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyone you know that got into those growth etfs you know it, it's been a struggle clearly i'm an investing genius um so <laughs> you wrote about the um adani i think it was a short squeeze that happened to them or uh can you remind me what that was about yeah yeah so this was actually a really interesting story and you know I, I should probably start by talking about india etfs because if you look at inda that's the biggest u.s listed india etf five billion dollars in assets it's down four percent so far this year for context the broad emerging market space as measured by iemg is up 10 percent in the same period so minus 4% versus plus 10%, big difference. And this all has to do with the scathing research report that short seller Hindenburg Research put out about a week ago, accusing India's second largest conglomerate called the Adani Group of essentially fraud. And after they did that, we saw this massive move lower in stocks associated with that conglomerate. There's about seven, eight or nine of those stocks uh, and they all fell and it wiped out something like $100 billion in market cap in just a few days. Oh. Now, yeah, yeah, it's huge. And it's a big deal, not so much because the Adani Group stocks uh, make up a huge portion of the Indian stock market or anything like that. They have a pretty big weighting, something like 4% in INDA. But more importantly, this has raised suspicions about the financials of all publicly traded Indian equities. Can we trust the numbers kind of thing? So 
we've seen these type of concerns in China, for example. Heck, we've even seen it in the U.S. to some extent, right? Especially mm -hmm. if you go back to Enron and WorldCom and things yeah. like that. Um, so I think, yeah, this is going to weigh on the Indian market probably until there's more clarity with regard to the Adani group and all these allegations that Hindenburg made. Um, because, you know, India has kind of been this darling of emerging market investors. If you look at five-year returns, mm -hmm. INDA is up 27% versus only 3% um, for IEMG. Uh, and that's essentially because, you know, investors are really enthused about the strong demographics that India has and the strong growth prospects for the economy. But the Indian stock market isn't cheap. It's a trading at a very high valuation, something like 20 times earnings versus 12 times for the broader EM space. So, you know, given that and given these accusations against one of India's biggest companies, it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, last year, India was a, a country that was talked about a lot, given that, you know, everyone wanted to avoid China. And it's basically uh, the second largest uh, economy, I believe, in emerging markets, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, apparently the most populous country uh, this year. <laughs> so uh, people are excited about that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess it's just kind of growing pains in a way, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Ultimately, you know, this kind of scrutiny um, as it relates to the Adani group and Indian companies in general is ultimately going to be a good thing, right? We want to make sure that these companies are portraying them in an accurate manner, and that's going to help investors long term. Yeah, for sure. So, Heather, um, let's turn to launches. I know you wrote a about how launches are faring so far in 2023. What's it looking like? It's looking slow. Um, we only had 21 launches in January this year. And that's mm -hmm. like in the previous two years, we had 37 launches like last year in January and then 29 launches in 2021. Now in January, 2020, when... I think people were getting like a whiff of the coming pandemic. The number of launches was just a dozen. So that's a significant slowdown. Um, yeah. So what's causing that? I don't know. I feel like it may be a certain amount of uncertainty about the economy right now. I mean, things are going pretty good in terms of equities. People are... Or, um, you know, stocks are rebounding. Like we just talked about how, you know, ARC is up sharply. Uh, Bitcoin's doing really well. And it seems like things are kind of re rebounding. But I think people who are, you know, working in the financial field are maybe a little more suspicious of this upswing. And maybe firms are kind of just backing away from launching things until there's more clarity as to what the environment will be. I mean, it it's so hard to tell. It could just be a fluctuation if, you know, investment firms that launch ETFs or, you know, maybe they just decided collectively, you know, I mean, on an individual basis, but en masse that they weren't going to launch a lot of funds in January. Um, the gotcha. interesting thing about the 21 launches, though, is that I think almost all but one were actively managed 
And the split we've seen since the ETF rule passed in 2019 um, has generally been kind of like 60% active management, 50, uh, 40% passive management. Um, so, you know, active has been really growing, but, you know, <laughs> to have all but one, possibly two, there might've been another one, it be actively managed is kind of extreme for the first month of the year. And I have to wonder if it's like a harbinger of possibly, you know, a stronger presence of active ETFs in 2023. Maybe we'll see a lot more active launches. I don't yeah. know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, all but one or two ETFs active in January. That's incredible. Yeah, and going and it was a 60-40 split, you said. So 40% active since 2019. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm a little fuzzy on the numbers and the proportion has kind of wiggled a little bit from that. But generally over the last few years, that's what I've been seeing. Wow, amazing. So clearly active is growing in terms of number of ETFs, but in terms of assets under management, are they gaining any traction? I think they are getting more uh, traction than they have before. I haven't really been following that that closely, but I seem to recall that active managed, actively managed ETFs did represent at least a larger proportion of flows this year than they have previously. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Will active continue to have this huge uh, share of the, the ETF launches going forward? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And well, we haven't talked about your uh, predictions for the next 30 years, because um, that was a pretty cool article. And your, I, I think your biggest one was that SPY will lose its ETF crown. Yeah, yeah. It, it's fun writing that article, you know, kind of looking ahead 30 years. And the SPY loses its ETF crown is kind of something we'll see uh, in the nearer term, right? This isn't something that's going to happen long term. This is going to something that's going to happen in the next few years, I think. Because if you look at assets under management, IVV, VTI, VOO, they're, you know, right behind SPY. Uh, and, you know, I think it, I predicted around 2025. I just pull, pulled that out of thin air. But if you look at the numbers, that's around the time when likely IVV has a chance of surpassing SPY in terms of assets. But, you know, that's obviously going to be significant because SPY has been the biggest ETF for three decades now. But SPY, is, I think, is going to remain the most actively traded ETF for many, many years to come, probably well over a decade, because it trades something like 15 to 40 times the amount of shares that those other ETFs do on any given day. But, you know, it's still significant. And, you know, we're going to be writing about it when it happens. I mean, that's an incredible amount of liquidity. Does it does liquidity matter after a certain point unless you're making super huge trades? Yeah, for most investors, it doesn't matter, right? But for really big investors and investors who need maybe access to options markets, derivative markets, things like that, then SPY is pretty much second to none, right? Especially if you look at the options market, SPY is so deep and liquid, while IVVs is very, very small in comparison. So for those type of more, you could call, I guess, sophisticated investors, very large investors, it, it might matter. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely for traders, I would assume. 
Um, yeah, definitely. Those, definitely. Those three basis point expense ratios on IBV and VOO are pretty hard to resist, I would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are the, those are a big advantage they have uh, over the original ETF SPY. So if SPY loses its crown, it's no longer the biggest. Um, you're, you were positing that Vanguard would become the number one issuer in the U.S. for ETFs, which I totally agree with. I see that coming. And like Vanguard, I mean, Vanguard has been steadily eroding um, uh, iShares lead. Um, what have you seen? Yeah. yeah, they have been. And it's not for lack of trying on the part of BlackRock's part, right? They've been putting out a lot of ETFs, innovative ETFs. But Vanguard just has this reputation and this following that continues to attract just so much money year after year, uh, and, and it's eating away slowly at BlackRock's lead. So the, the data I, uh, again, pulled out of thin air was 2027 when Vanguard becomes the number one U.S. ETF issuer. That's, it's not a foregone conclusion, right? BlackRock's still such a huge name in ETFs, and they're putting out a lot of products, like I said. So, you know, it... it BlackRock has a chance to, you know, extend its lead further out into the future, especially if you look at 2022, the difference in inflows between Vanguard ETFs and BlackRock ETFs is only $21 billion, right? And the gap between the two in terms of total assets is $300 plus billion. So at a $20 billion per year rate, it'll take a long time to close that gap. But there have been other years um, where we saw a bigger, you know, advantage for Vanguard in terms of inflows. Like uh, I think in 2021, we saw Vanguard taking 117 billion dollars more BlackRock ETF. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I expect Vanguard will super surpass BlackRock, but it's not something that's going to happen in the next year or two. Yeah, but you also said that you think ETFs will surpass mutual funds by 2030, and I think that's probably likely unless direct indexing kind of like comes out of nowhere and takes a whole bunch of assets for itself yeah yeah i mean both of those are possible too right i didn't actually realize that uh, the mutual fund industry in the u.s is going to have its 100 year anniversary next year we're here celebrating 30 years they're going to be celebrating 100 years so you know that's a 70 year head start for mutual funds and that's why even though we keep talking about etf stealing assets for mutual funds. Mutual funds are still way bigger, about two and a half times the size according to Morningstar, 16.3 assets versus six and a half trillion for ETFs. Uh, so that $10 trillion gap, pretty big, but think about what happened last year. We saw ETFs pull in 600 billion and mutual funds lost 1 trillion. That's a $1.6 trillion difference. So we could quickly eat away at that $10 trillion gap. 2030 is probably a bit, you know, aggressive, right? You know, you're going to have to see um, very strong inflows for ETFs to, to happen by 2030. But I think in the 2030s, for sure, ETFs are going to surpass mutual funds. Wow. Yeah, that totally seems reasonable to me, actually. Yeah, yeah. And But you did mention a direct indexing, Heather. What are your thoughts on that? I... I think it could steal assets from ETFs. Um, I don't think it's really happening at a significant level now. But if 
it's it's they have to get that trans uh that technology to the point where it's so low cost that it costs less than ETFs, I think, because otherwise there are other strategies you can implement if you want to like a- avoid or lighten your exposure to certain areas of the market, I would think. Yeah, yeah I agree. And in, in the article I wrote, you know, this is essentially a matter of technology and user interface, right? You know, direct indexing just becomes so easy, as easy as buying an ETF today, right? Just heading to your brokerage firm and you know click and buy then you know it's a pretty you know powerful uh, competitor to etfs i think right you can create a custom index exactly the way you like it and etfs can never have that level of personalization you can take out five stocks out of the you know uh s p 500 and that's your you know your broad market exposure um, so I think, you know, that's a pretty, you know, powerful type of thing if the technology and the user experience gets to a level where it's that easy. Yeah, yeah. But I, I have total faith in the technology aspect of it. I mean, we've got that, what, chat GPT that's like, you know, taking over. <laughs> yeah. Possibly it is. Uh, what what was it on uh, the Terminator Sky Lab or Sky? Oh, man, I should know this. Skynet, yeah, Skynet. <laughs> it's like we're that close to Skynet. I feel like direct indexing would be kind of a cinch by comparison. Yeah, yeah. That's why, like, when I was looking at 30 years from now, right, it's unimaginable the change we'll see, right? We can't even begin to fathom, especially since technology seems to be accelerating. And that's why in my final prediction, I the ETF, as we know it today, might not even exist, right? Like, we're literally you know, on the cusp of all these, you know, major developments in terms of blockchain, in terms of uh, AI, everything like that. I don't think, you know, we should necessarily think that the financial services industry is going to be immune from all that change. Um, And I think, you know, we saw ETFs didn't exist 30 years ago, 30 years from now, um, I think we're going to see even bigger changes. So I'm I'm not going to even try to predict what we'll see um, at that time, but I do know, you know, it's going to be very different than what we have today. It's good. We'll probably be retired by then, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Well, we'll have to end it there for today. Listeners, thanks for joining us. You can find Exchange Traded Fridays on all of the major podcast platforms and, of course, on the ETF.com website. Talk with you next week. Thank you.